Thank you guys so much uh, for coming. Honored that you would join us. I hope you guys had a good week off last week. It was a dumb sports game. Uh, we do know, I do know um, that we watched it the wrong way, my wife and I. We watched the first half of the game, were unimpressed, watched the halftime show, and then turned it off. So we heard, we heard it was a doozy. <laughs> Uh, but really, glad you guys are here. Just wanted to reiterate that we have our women's conference coming up. If, if uh, you're curious about that, it's a free women's conference that we do. It's probably the biggest conference that we have all year. We've got some real big speakers coming. It's always a really fun time. There's lots of like shopping and crazy girl stuff. Uh, it's March 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Love to see uh, all you women there. Uh, you can register, of course, here. Uh, talk to one of our leaders, or you can register online, bcawomensconf, bcawomensconf.com. So uh, anyways, it's totally free. Love to see you women there. I'm usually in charge of the merch booth. So uh, we make a big deal about the merch booth. So come and see me if you come. Uh, well, we are working our way through Matthew in this first, these first four months of this year, January, February, March, and April. And so we've been, uh, we've been doing that for uh, about six weeks. I think this is the sixth week that we're there. Um, and we're kind of, we're kind of uh, oscillating seven chapters every month. So, so we're in the second section, like a uh, grouping of chapters. So we're really studying Matthew chapter eight through Matthew chapter uh, 14. And we, we just have a lot, there's a lot of different kinds of sermons. Do you guys know that? There's a lot of different ways that people do what I do up here um, with a lot of different objectives. And, a lot, and I think oftentimes we'll come uh, at least this is me, when I'm coming to a message, I'm, I'm oftentimes really focused on this one idea that I'm wanting to communicate to you. This is the one sentence, and I'm just trying to beat it into your head. Um, other times, I'm wanting to inspire you or to bring hope. This is what people like to do uh, in sermons. Well, this, this series is a little bit different, and what I'm really wanting to do is just to dedicate these four months um, just to biblical literacy, that's really what I'm wanting to do. In my humble opinion, I think the average Christian is far too biblically illiterate, um, where there's this, this faith that we have claimed to give our life to, which is following Jesus Christ. But the majority of Christians, sad to say, they wouldn't know a true story from a false story um, of Jesus in a lot of ways. And so I just, I've just kind of set this time aside, and the messages are simple. They're not as inspirational, but we're really just studying the life of Jesus um, and I think it's important. Jesus talks a lot, if you've been reading your chapters, which I hope you have for your homework, Jesus talks a lot about being able to recognize what he would call wolves in sheep's clothing, which would be somebody who would come in the name of Jesus, but bears um, a fake um, message. And so if you think that that doesn't happen at all in 2017, you're crazy. Uh, because it, it seems like people now, because, because the average Christian doesn't know a whole lot about the Christian faith, if someone were to come and if they, if they, if they say that they're a Christian and they talk with enough um, passion and enough conviction, it just seems like that we instantly assume that that's somehow their message is related uh, to the message of Jesus. And that's almost um, certainly not true. But so we just need to know, we need to know the message of Jesus so that we can recognize uh, the message of Jesus. And we also believe this, simply that the message of Jesus is the thing that transforms our lives. And so these are simple messages. Um, they're Bible study type messages, but I hope you're having a good time with them. I certainly am. And I hope you are reading your homework uh, to go along with it. Again, chapters eight through 14. And because of the dumb sports game that was last week, our, we have to cover these seven chapters in just three weeks which really messed me up because I had the whole thing planned out, the whole thing charted out, and the Super Bowl came and it wrecked all of that. 
So I've been thinking and I've been wrestling, trying to figure out how we're going to dissect our uh, three weeks here to cover these seven chapters. And if you've been reading the seven chapters, you know that they are not brief. There's a lot that happens. Anyone getting stuck in like the 10 and 11 world? It's like, holy moly. It can get really deep in there. So so I've really thought um, about what we're going to do. Of course, like I said, we're, we're sort of exiting um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Jesus's uh, miracle working ministry. And so we're going to kind of jump around in the seven chapters uh, to some of his his miracles. So we're taking a break from his teaching ministry and we're going into his miracle working ministry. So my title tonight is this, The Messianic Secret. The Messianic Secret. Uh, in fact, why don't to get in the right frame of mind here? Will you bow your heads and let's pray? Uh, Jesus Christ, we come uh, to you tonight so humbly, uh, just as people who are wanting to learn about you. I think we live in a world that's so lights and camera and action that it's sometimes hard to really focus in on your simple and beautiful message. But we've, we've set this time aside to learn about you um, and to hear from you. So our prayer tonight is this, that you would teach us, that it wouldn't just be words, but that your message in your life would come alive to us and it would begin to really matter to us and that we would we begin, we'd begin to see you um, in a way that not only is just a head thing, but really it's a heart thing too. And it begins to change the way that we live and treat each other. Skin, thanks for being here. Uh, we love your church and we love you and we're just so grateful to be here. And again, we say thank you and we love you. It's in your sense that we pray. Everybody said... Amen. Okay, so the messianic secret. Uh, Raise your hand if you have ever heard that phrase, the messianic secret, before. One, two, three, all you Bible geniuses out there. David Goldman doesn't count because he helped me come up with the title. Actually, I think he he had heard of it before. Uh, So the messianic secret, so what that is, is that's where Jesus, this is what theologians will call the times when Jesus goes uh, and he does some amazing miracle and then he says this, shh, don't tell anybody. Anybody uh, find that odd when he, he does all these miracles and he says, see that no one, te- see that no one knows uh, about what I've done. And so it's an interesting thing. He does this throughout his ministry. He's constantly in this place of performing these miracles and saying like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what, what I just did. Um, it occurs constantly and people almost never obey it. Did you ever see that where it's like, Jesus asked them to not say anything and they went around town and told everybody. Uh, is how the reason, the reason though, that Jesus is um, wanting to keep secret is this. The Jewish people that he comes to, they're expecting Jesus to be a political revolutionary. These are oppressed people under a wicked government. And what they were believing for, they were believing that there was a Messiah who was going to come and violently overthrow the Roman government and finally be their liberation. Of course, Jesus was never going to do that, um, and he knew that, uh, but he, he didn't want the Jews to think that, but more specifically, he didn't want the Romans to think that because they would kill him, which of course they did um, for mainly uh, this specific reason, but they did, he didn't want the word to get out because he knew that they were going to kill him as soon as they find out because, because they were thinking that he was going to usurp Caesar's power. And so, so they didn't want that to get out too soon because they knew that he would, they would kill him uh, before his appointed time. So he goes around saying, shh, because he can't get too famous because they, he knew that they would kill him essentially uh, too soon. So here's some examples just for fun of the messianic secret in our seven chapters, Matthew uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 3 and 4. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. 
Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. Thanks, guys. Uh, Moving beyond our chapters, 1620, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Uh, Matthew 17, 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So of course we can see that Jesus is telling people to not tell, but it actually goes a little bit farther. Uh, These are two very fascinating scriptures to me. We're going to switch to Mark. The Messianic secret is certainly true in the book of Matthew, but it's most prominent in the gospel of Mark. Check this out. Mark chapter 1 verse 34. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Isn't that weird? So he would cast out demons, and then he would also make the demons not tell anybody that he was the coming Messiah, which is a strange thing, right? Mark chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So you can see it's not only a secret amongst the people, it's the secret amongst the demons um, as well. So we're talking about the miracles of Jesus. And what I want to do is I just want to briefly touch on seven of his miracles because I am such, I'm so short on time, I would love to just go chapter by chapter, but we're going to have to jump uh, through. This is what I consider probably Jesus' seven most prominent uh, miracles, certainly in our section, but possibly in the book of Matthew. And so we're just going to touch on seven miracles really quick. Uh, are you doing okay? Okay, here we go. A number, miracle number one was when Jesus heals the centurion's servant. This is in chapter eight. Hopefully it sounds familiar. Uh, the way that it goes is this. There's this centurion guard and he says, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus says, well, should I come and heal him? And the centurion guard says, I don't even deserve to have you come to my house. But if you just say the word, I know he'll be healed. Jesus loves this response, and Jesus says this, "'Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, but they will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth.'" He says, "'Go and let it be done just as you believed it would.'" And the man was healed at this very moment. So it's a weird thing that Jesus says, right? He's, he, he's amazed that this centurion had um, all of this faith. And then he says, just to let you guys know, there's going to be people coming from the east and to the west. They're expecting to come to the party, but they're going to be cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a weird thing to say. Really what's happening, and it's kind of fascinating, is that Jesus is, um, what he's doing is he's counteracting racism, which is weird. And I'll explain what I mean. But First off, are you aware of this, that the church has historically consistently been on the wrong side of racial equality? Do you know that? It's a bummer. Um, but it's, it's better, but it's still not great, uh, as weird as that sounds. In fact, check out this statistic. Only 5.5 of American churches are considered multi-ethnic today. Only 5.5. And what multi-ethnic is defined as is, is having no single ethnicity taking up more than 80% of the congregation. And in fact, studies will show us, secular studies will show us that racial segregation is still the strongest in three places, bars, prisons, and churches. Bars, prisons, and churches. But then you look at the rest of the world, you even think about things like sports or business or even something like the military. They're uh, far less racially divided. 
But in this particular case, what Jesus is talking about, these guys coming from the East and the West and they're gonna be cast aside. The assumption of the Jewish people was this, that the Jewish people, that it was their nationality, it was their, it was their people. They assumed that they were more fit to be called God's people than anyone else. But the centurion, uh, the centurion it, it's a loaded word because what it is is... Uh, um, this guy, he is a, he's a military leader for an oppressive and opposing military, which is crazy. So if you, think about, if you think about these are the people who are killing our kids. These are the people who are skinning us alive for our faith. And then one of, one of the, the military leaders would come to Jesus and Jesus would accept him and he'd be amazed by the man's faith. And then basically what he means when he talks about the East and the West, he's saying there's going to be a lot of people who are like Jews who are just assuming they're just going to like fly on in here and they're going to be surprised because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to come and they're assuming they're the people who are in and they're going to be kicked out. And then there's a lot of people who the, the, our community thinks are going to be out and they're the ones who are actually going uh, to be in. And Jesus' point here is that people who assume they know who's on the inside track with God and who's on the outside of the track with God are going to be really surprised at the end, really. That's, that's, um, that's, that's what's going on because there's, there's um, this tendency, especially in, in Jesus' day, but even in our day, there's this tendency to, because of your nationality, because of your upbringing, you just assume that you are on the inside track with God. And that's true today. In fact, we know this, that 83% of Americans would consider themselves Christian. And if that were even half true, uh, the nation would look completely different. And so, so there's just a lot of people, I think the warning applies to us too, that it's like, there's a lot of people who are thinking they're just gonna breeze in because they're like, a, they're like an American who was raised in a Christian home and they're gonna see, he's just like, I just wouldn't be so sure about that. And so, so Jesus, when he's, when he's talking to this centurion servant, there's also this biting warning that he's saying this, just so you guys know, to assume that you are part of the Christian faith just because of your upbringing uh, is not enough. The, the required action is this, that you have actual, personal, one-on-one -on -one faith in Jesus Christ. So that's, uh, that's miracle number one. I don't have that much time to go through all of them. The rest of them are quick. Here we go. Uh, miracle number two is this. Jesus calms the storm. You guys all know this story. It's one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. But Jesus and his disciples, they're on a boat, and there's this furious storm. Jesus is sleeping uh, in the boat, and his disciples, though, they're panicking because they're positive they're going to die because the storm is so bad. And so they're freaked out. Jesus is sleeping. So they wake up Jesus and they say, don't you even care that we're going uh, to drown here? And Jesus says this, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he goes and he rebukes the wind and he rebukes the waves um, and the, the sea becomes completely calm. Pretty straightforward. Number three is this. We gotta go fast. Uh, Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. This is in chapter eight, verse 28 and 34. So there's these two men and they're demon-possessed and they're so violent, the Bible says, that people can't even pass by uh, because they're just crazy. And so uh, they see Jesus coming and they recognize that Jesus has the power uh, over the spiritual realm. And they say this, if you drive us out, at least send us into the herd of the pigs. Can you do that? And so Jesus says, all right, that's fine, go. So, so they go into the pigs. The pigs are, become demon-possessed and they jump off a cliff and then you know, land in the water and they all drown. 
And then something that perplexed me for a long time happens in this one, which is, which is people from the town hear what happens and they, they, um, at, they make Jesus leave. And I always just thought that it was, had something to do with maybe the fact that they don't like spooky miracle guys or something. But uh, really what is happening is this, they're mad because of the economic implications of losing their pigs. So um, it's interesting that people don't care for uh, healings if it affects their wallets. True today also. Um, Okay, number four is this. Jesus forgives and heals the paralyzed man. This is chapter nine, one through eight. Jesus, uh, or some of these friends, bring this guy on a mat to Jesus. He's he's, uh, paralyzed. And Jesus says this when he sees the man. He says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Which is an odd thing to say. That's not what, I I don't know if they were that concerned about the sin part, more the paralyzed part, right? But at this point, I will talk about that in a second. The Pharisees would look at Jesus who claims to forgive sins and they would say this uh, to themselves. They say, this guy is blaspheming. And this is really the first interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, which they accuse him um, of blaspheming, which which is of course really linked to um, them killing him because he's a blasphemer. But Jesus reads their minds that this is what they're talking about, um, that they're accusing him of, of blaspheming. And Jesus says this, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat and go home. So it's an interesting interaction, this idea of sin. And you know, people have found really bad theology there that it's like, well, maybe it was his sin that was making him paralyzed. It's like really um, bad. Stanley Hierwas in his Matthew commentary, he explains it like this. Jesus does not make a strong distinction between sin and sickness. And that's true. The fact that he forgives the paralyzed man's sin does not imply that Jesus thinks his paralysis the result of sin or punishment for sin. Rather, Jesus simply acts as one ready to forgive sins as well as heal the body. Both sickness and sin are evils. Neither should be part of God's good creation. Jesus has come to restore creation, healing the sick, exercising demons, and forgiving sins are all acts of restoration. So oftentimes he does them both together. But there's not usually a sick man who he just says your sins are forgiven and he leaves him sick. But he does both. He's uh, he's holistic like that. Uh, So number five is this. We've only got uh, a few more. Uh, number five is this, Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. Matthew doesn't say it's Jairus' daughter, but you can gather that from the other, um, the other gospels. It's in 9, 18 through 26. So there's this religious leader, his name is Jairus, and he says this, my daughter has just died. But if you come and you, if you put your hand on her, well, then she will live. So Jesus agrees and he goes, he goes to her house. There's lots of commotion, lots of things happening, lots of people panicking. This is not uncommon if you've been in the room. Um, when people pass away, it's just kind of crazy and wild. And Jesus, Jesus just gets sick of it. And he says, he says um, you guys are crazy. This girl is not dead, but asleep. And more than that, I need you all to go away. He says, can y'all like get out of here? And so they think Jesus is crazy. He thinks they're crazy. And so they, find, find, they all leave. They, they're all fine, whatever. And so Jesus comes and he takes the girl by the hand and she gets up and news spreads throughout the region, right? So the messianic secret is being destroyed. Uh, Two more. Number six is this, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And by 5,000, we mean 5,000 men, 
of course. Jesus um, has been followed by 5,000 men, plus women and children. Families were pretty big back in the day, so they think this could be possibly 15,000 people, 12,000 people, uh, something like that. But they're following Jesus. Uh, They're essentially his disciples, and evening comes. And so his core group of disciples say this, hey, uh, can't can't we just like kick these guys out? Can't we like make them go home or something? And Jesus says, "Um, no, let's give them some food. Is basically what he says. And uh, so they say, well, we'd love to, but only one problem, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And in this particular case, these loaves of bread are like these, just these tiny little baseball things. So this is one person's meal, essentially. Um, and so Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. So he thanks God for it. He blesses it. He breaks it. And uh, everyone gets as much food as they want. And at the end, there's 12 basketfuls left over. Um, so it's a great miracle. Uh, in feeding the hungry. Lastly, number seven is this, Jesus walks on the water. This is in Matthew 14, verse 22. So Jesus makes his disciples after all this, he makes them get on a boat and Jesus leaves them. He stays back by himself uh, to pray. And so the disciples are hanging out on the boat and they see this man walking on the water and they instantly think it's a ghost and they call out it's a ghost. But when they finally understand that it's Jesus who's walking on the water, um, Peter says this, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and meet you on the water. And so, so Jesus says, yeah, that's fine. You come, come, okay, bid me come, okay, come. Uh, so he comes, everything is going great. He's walking on the water and it's really uh, amazing. But when he sees the turbulent wind and when he sees the turbulent waves, he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. Uh, so Jesus grabs him uh, and saves him. And he says this, you, uh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So those are what, to me, those are kind of like the seven most prominent miracles uh, debatably, in the book of Matthew, certainly in our chapters here. And so when I think of the, the miracles of Jesus, for me, it's only good. I just, I just like them. It's just cool. Uh, I find Jesus quirky and delightful and irreverent in like just the right way. Um, I think he's very fun and quick-witted. And for me, I read the miracles of Jesus, and I'm only blessed. But what is interesting about um, the miracle working ministry of Jesus is that the fruit of his miracles was not always good, which is an interesting idea. Of course, we believe this, that, that healing a person's body was always a good thing, but what witnessing that um, did to other people was not always a good thing. You can actually see this in um, the ministry of Jesus. And so what we're going to go through uh, with the remaining time we have is we're just going to go through three really brief um, reactions, responses to Jesus's miracle working ministry and how they would maybe reflect our relationship with Jesus and his capacity to work miracles uh, in our life and in our culture. Okay, so the first problem with Jesus's miracle working ministry is this, that people reject Jesus because of his miracles. And uh, in fact, the reason is this. I wonder if you would admit this even in your own life. People reject what they don't understand. If you encounter a new idea, I bet the first time you read the Sermon on the Mount, you were like, I don't think so. (laughs) Because you just reject because it sounds so absurd. You know what I mean? Like turning the other cheek. Nobody nobody wants to do that. That's not how the world works. 
Uh, and people always reject that which they don't understand. And that was certainly true of the miracle working ministry of Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees would say this when they see Jesus working miracles, they would say this, he does this with the power of Satan, which is a pretty strong <laughs> accusation uh, to, to point at Jesus. Uh, two examples of that, Matthew 9, 32 through 34. A man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been uh, mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So he's accusing Jesus or they're accusing Jesus of being um, demon-possessed, essentially. Then in chapter 12, verse 22, uh, here's another one. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, this is a nickname for Satan, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And so it, you would think that the miracle working ministry of Jesus would just result in people believing in Jesus, but the opposite oftentimes is true. That people end up rejecting Jesus because of uh, his miracles. And I just wanna say this, that that's true about Jesus, that people reject what they don't understand. And that has always been true of true Christians. That people don't understand the way that we live. That we live in a way that's totally different than the rest. Is my mic cutting out? Should I go to handheld? Check. Is it okay? Okay. Let me know. Raise your hand or something. Uh, that, that Jesus would even warn us, warn his disciples. He says it like this, the world will hate you. That the way that you live is so different from the world. And so you can even look at your own life and say this, like, does the world have anything to hate me for that has anything to do with Jesus? And if the answer is no, then you've got some work to do. Uh, because Jesus says this, the world will hate you. And because you live in such a different way that the world uh, doesn't understand because they, they reject what they don't understand. In John chapter 15, Jesus explains this. The reason that the world will hate us is because we don't belong to the world, is the, the way that he says it. And so a Christian sees the world totally different than a non-Christian. For one thing, we believe in something called absolute truth. We believe we make absolute truth claims. So we say that there are some things in this life that are absolutely true, and there are some things in this life that are absolutely false. The world, especially in the culture that we live in now, will push against that. They push against that with, with relative truth, where there's something where it's just like, well, there's just right things for some people, but the Christian must can and must reject that uh, for the, the idea that there is absolute truth claims. And not only that, we claim to understand God, which is kind of preposterous uh, if you think about it, but we claim to understand because of his revealed word and the Holy Spirit that we claim to understand who God is. And the world finds that really offensive for a lot of uh, reasons. Pat Buchanan is like a political commentary Guy, he recently went to Dartmouth and uh, he said to a, a class of Dartmouth students, he says this, I don't believe any individual knows the mind of God, my friend. Uh, which of course, you know, they, they like all clap for him. It's a contradiction. <laughs> they, you know what I mean? Because like if no one can know the mind of God, well then how can you know that it's unknowable? You know, it, it's like, it's a stupid thing to say. Uh, it's, it's like, it's the same thing as saying there is no truth. It's like, well, then what am I supposed to think about that statement you just made? You know what I mean? Because you just said, like, if there's no truth, then why would I believe that statement is true? Um, but but it, the, the world loves this idea. It's nonsensical. 
But the world loves the idea of there being no absolute truth and there being no way to understand God. The reason that the world loves that is because if we believe that there's no, there's no truth about God and there's no truth about the world, then no one can come and judge my experience. And the way, the way that I see the world is just, that's just true for me, man. Uh, but the Christian pushes against that, of course, and we say this, that there is absolute truth and there is absolute truth about God and that we understand it because of the revealed word um, of God. So is that to say that we're like big old jerks? Hopefully you know me better than that, that we hold signs that like have the truth on it and call them names. Of course we don't do that, but we still, we can never reject the truth claims of Christianity. And that's one of the reasons that uh, the world doesn't love us. Uh, And you can see the same thing is true for Jesus. The world pushed back on him because they didn't understand him. And his his truth, um, his his truth was different than their experience. And the same will be true uh, for you. So people, so people ended up rejecting, people ended up rejecting uh, him because of his miracles, which is a crazy idea. Number two is this, people become dependent on his miracles. People become dependent on his miracles. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 uh, says this, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They say to Jesus, uh, and Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So that's a weird thing to say, right? The prophet Jonah was... Okay, what, what that means is Jonah, Jonah was uh, in the belly of the whale for three days, and then he emerged. And in the same way, Jesus Christ was in the belly of the earth for three days, and he emerged. So he's just talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection, So he's saying this, you guys are wicked and adulterous for wanting a sign from me. The only sign that you're going to get is this, I am crucified for you and I'm resurrected for you. And that's all uh, you're going to get. And so of course you can kind of see this same phenomenon in Jesus' wilderness temptation, uh, where when we become dependent on God to perform for us, uh, we begin to miss the heart of what real Christianity is. Um, Because Christianity is a marriage and not a concert. You know what I mean? So we don't come to God um, saying like, give me a sign. Um, that's, not, uh, that's not the way that it works. And so here's the question I have for you on the screen. If the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah, would that be enough for you? If the only thing that you experience, like I know there's probably a lot of people in the room here that have heard the audible voice of God. I so want to, and I never have. I so want to, and I never have. I'm a very devout Christian. I pray a lot. Um, I read the Bible a lot. I've given my life to this. I've never seen any sort of miraculous miracle thing. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Like none of that has ever happened for me. I totally believe in all of it, but it's never been that. And so for me, um, I just have to ask my, myself this question, is Jesus enough for me? Am I satisfied with him? Or, or, do I, or have I been so deceived by this culture that's like, I just need God. In order for me to know that God is real, I need him to like jump through this weird hoop thing for me. Um, and of course, the danger for ministries that have this posture of like, um, uh, uh, teacher, we want a sign from you. Like that's the posture. The, um, the danger for ministries like that, of course, is it leads the doors wide open for pretending. Because if we just come and say this, man, you come here and Jesus is going to mess you up. Well, you know what? Then all of a sudden people are going to start pretending. And so the solution is this. Again, I believe in all the stuff. But the solution is this, that you just let God define the relationship. 
You let him define the relationship. And if he wants to do something big and crazy and wacky, then praise the Lord. And if he just wants to be still and small and kind and gentle and meek in the way that he comes to you, you're fine with that too. But you're just happy to be with him. You're not needing Jesus to perform. But really, as strange as it sounds, that's one of the things that happened with the, the ministry of Jesus is that people become, became dependent on him doing a magic trick. Like, Jesus, do a magic trick for us. And he says this, only wicked people ask for a magic trick. So instead, instead the, what you're going to get is this. You're going to get me dying for you and raising again. Is that enough for you? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, he says. Are you doing okay? Is that, is that heavy? Okay, problem number three. Uh, and hopefully uh, problem number one and problem number two would, would find you in like the happy and theological correct center, which is this. We don't reject Jesus for his miracles, nor do we worship him for them. We're, we're, just, we're just at this place where we are, um, we are happy to receive from him, but we're not needing him to perform uh, for us. Problem number three is this. Communities that receive miracles are held to a higher standard, which is a weird idea. Um, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24 uh, is this. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Is that an amazing scripture? Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. He says this, Woe to you, uh, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, this is, this is where he's living. <laughs> I just find that rich. He's talking about his hometown at this point in his life. And you, Capernaum, uh, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Which is brutal. Anyone think that's brutal scripture? I know, it's unbelievable. You, you need to not pull away too far from reading the teachings of Jesus because you'll start making him softer than I think he really was, if I'm being honest. Um, but it's one thing that I think is really challenging about these scriptures is that he's not talking to people, he's talking to whole communities. He's not, even, he's not saying, woe to you, Steve. He's saying, woe to you, this whole community that had received much and didn't uh, repent. And it's an amazing statement to say this, it's gonna be better for Sodom than for you. Because if you'll recall, Sodom's fate was that it was um, burned to the ground with all the people in it. So these are not like, Jesus is not mincing his words um, here in, in doing this. And so it's just an amazing thing. And what I want to impress upon you uh, in this is, I know that you know this, but when we're talking about communities that have received richly from God and did not repent, I bet you can think of one, which is this. America has been blessed in so many amazing, incredible ways. We have. We are the most wealthy people to have ever existed on the history of the planet. We're not talking about right now. We're talking about the history of the planet. 
we are the most wealthy, we are the most uh, blessed. And so, so with that amazing blessing comes also incredible responsibility. And I'm not talking about political like care. I'm not actually talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about this, that we must never, as people whom God has blessed, we must never get comfortable and forget God. We just, we just can't, we can't forget because we've been blessed with so many different things and we sleep in king-size beds um, and drive incredible cars. We just can't ever get to this place where um, we just get so comfortable that we forget God and we also forget that he has called us to live a very particular, unique way. Um, because it's so easy to just get comfortable and start living like a regular American. You know what I'm saying? A great pastor recently said this, is this, you're a Christian who happens to be an American. You're not an American who happens to be a Christian. The most that you are in this world is a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is, this is really at the heart of Jesus coming, and he does something that's really strange, is he comes and he consistently warns rich people. Have you noticed this? It's like, why are you picking on the rich people, Jesus? Uh, the reason is this, it's just so easy to get rich and comfortable, where you don't feel like this profound need to have God. You ever been in this place where everything is super cool and you don't really feel a profound need for God until like crap really hits the fan and then all of a sudden you're the one praying? Yeah, welcome to being an American Christian. And our need to pray just is much less than most people in the world because we're so comfortable. And again, I'm so grateful, but I also am just aware, I don't ever want to get so comfortable where my posture is this, God, this is all because of you. And any moment in time, you tell me what you'd like me to do, and I will, I will pass this all up, and I'll follow you. Because more than anything, I'm a Christian. More than any of this other amazing things, these other labels that people put on me, that I put on myself, more than any of that, I'm a follower uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why Christianity, you, you'll see this historically, Christianity thrives in poverty-stricken nations. Thrives, blows up, explodes. Yet Christianity struggles when it reaches the limelight. When it, when it reaches the rich, um, Christianity has a hard time spreading. In fact, it just kind of sizzles and dies simply because this, there's just no need for him. You just don't need God. You know what I'm saying? You don't need God when, you're, when your life is just so comfortable. You don't feel um, this need. The, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread doesn't mean a lot when you have thousands of dollars in the bank. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need my daily bread. I'm fine. I need like a fat raise at work. You know what I mean? But, but historically, Christians have found themselves in dire places and they've always, they've had this incredible sense of felt need um, for God to come through for them, even on that day. Like they don't even have food for that day. And when you're in that place, you, you're, it's easy for you to keep your gratitude. And we've been so blessed and you don't have to feel bad for it. You don't have to feel guilty for it, but you do just have to make an extra effort in your own heart um, to always stay grateful because it's so easy unless we're continually doing this thing where we're turning our heart back to God, where we're turning our heart back to God. Because, because we have been so blessed, we've been so gifted. And you can see this, that the people who received much from God, when they don't, they don't keep their heart turned towards God, he doesn't like that. He's not happy with communities um, that would receive all of God's blessing and then turn away from him. That's not what he's looking um, for. And just, just know this, that this is true in communities, it's also true in your personal life, and I'm done, but... Um, 
life tastes sweeter when you remember that you didn't earn it. And so I know that, I know that you earned your paycheck. Um, I know that you earned the right to that nice cold beer after work. You know, like I understand that you bought all that, but you have to understand this too, that, that God's goodness towards you is the thing that enables you to get any of that. And so, he, so you still have to have this posture of like, God, I earned this paycheck, but I'm still deeply grateful to you for it. And I, I realize that I bought this car, but I'm still grateful to you because you gave me the ability to get this car. You gave me this life. You gave me this breath. And so we just can't ever get this posture that we see in the miracles of Jesus where we just get so comfortable because he's blessed us in such profound ways. And the response is this, that we turn away from him. We just can never be those types of people. So the miracles of Jesus, I'm totally done. Uh, We're going to take communion here in a second. Um, The miracles of Jesus, problem number one is this. People rejected Jesus because of his miracles. And in the same way, the world will reject the authentic Christian. We're too different. We don't match up to any earthly ideologies. Problem number two is this. People become dependent on his miracles. And we must resist that temptation as well. Here's the question to ask you. Are you satisfied with Jesus? And problem number three is this, communities that receive miracles are held to a higher standard. And if that's ever been true of anyone, it's true of us today. So we don't receive the blessings of God and then just go about our daily lives. No, we continually turn back to the heart of God and we hold loosely to earthly things and we simply cling to him. So um, we're gonna receive communion and I just wanna put up that slide one more time. Um, the, the second part of that Stanley Hirewas quote, because I really think it's one of the things that links together and holds together uh, the miracle working of Jesus is, is just this idea of restoration, that he comes and heals the broken things um, and he brings hope to the hopeless. Uh, this is what Stanley Hirewas says. He says, both sickness and sin are evils. Neither should be a part of God's good creation. Jesus has come to restore creation, healing the sick, exercising demons, and forgiving sins are all acts of restoration. So restoration for the Christian, it's not this thing that happens just like this one time. You know, it's not just like, well, I'm restored. I'm so glad that's done. Now we can move on. No, we're constantly in this state of being restored. The way that I like to think about it is this, that, that God's presence is kind of like the air we breathe. We can hold our breath for a little while, but you shouldn't do it for too long. You need to continually come back to his like healing presence because it's, it's this thing where we come back to him. We come back to the Lord's table. We meet again with Jesus and he restores in us the things that are like the world's constantly kind of pulling away, kind of stripping at us where we find this sense one more time of being like, okay, of being held by him, um, of being cared for by him. And so we just come, you know, it's this opportunity. I know we do it. We do it like every week, but it's this opportunity that is for you if you want it. It's so easy. You can totally zone out and that's totally an option for you, or you can make the most of these times, come back to him, find that healing and find that restoration. And so as they pass, I just want you to spend a second in here thinking about you and the life that you live you have a life that's great. Even, even the worst of you in this room, I mean, have a life that a lot of people in the world really dream of having. It's not to say that you don't have challenges. It's not to say that you don't have hard hardships. 
but we can all come to Jesus and come to his table at moments like this and simply just say this, thank you. And so just spend a a minute finding your way back to gratitude and then we'll receive uh, communion together. So you guys can go ahead and pass the elements. communion invitation is on the screen. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. Let me pray for you. Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, as blessed people. Now, there's not a single person in this room uh, who hasn't been the recipient of your miracle working power. And we're we're so blessed in so many different ways. Yes, we have challenges. Yes, we have trials. Yes, we have troubles. But we're all super blessed. And life is really great. And life is really beautiful. We refuse to be the people who receive from you and then don't change the way that we live. So we open up our hearts to you and say, 
we just vow to never get so calloused and so comfortable that we forget you and forget that you're the source of everything good. You're the source of everything beautiful. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so we say thank you. And we come to your table with gratitude. We say thank you. So let's eat the bread and drink from the cup together. Will you stand with me? I thank you guys so much for being here. Um, we continue next week. Honored that you would join us. Hopefully the weather will be nicer uh, next week. Uh, if you're reading your chapters and you're feeling like, what the heck is Jesus' problem with all this mom, son, father, daughter talk? Um, come next week. We're going to talk about that. He's come to turn daughters against their mothers, sons against their father. We're going to talk about all that next week. I'm really looking forward to next week. Hope you'll join us, um, and we'll see you then. God bless you. You're dismissed.